Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Good morning, Southeastern. Y'all all right this morning? This is a Baptist school. You're supposed to be talking back. Uh, all right. Praise the Lord. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs chapter 31. And with God's help, we want to consider this morning verses 1 to 9. As you're turning there, let me set a little context. 58,000 American soldiers were killed in the Vietnam War. In the American conscience, the Vietnam War exists as a terrible injustice and an unjust war for many people. In World War II, due to disease and combat, the U.S. lost 116,000 soldiers. In World War, excuse me, that's World War I. In World War II, we lost 416,000 soldiers. So the death toll for the two world conflicts for American soldiers is about 532,000 men and women. We think of these wars as mighty conflicts of carnage and destruction and threats to freedom and life. As many as 750,000 soldiers died in the American Civil War which is often called the bloodiest conflict on American soil. But the total number of abortions in this country has surpassed 60 million in the last 46 years since Roe v. Wade was decided by the Supreme Court. In 2017 alone, there were over 882,000 abortions in the U.S., more than the Civil War, more than both world wars combined, and five times the number of American casualties in Vietnam. Between 1941 and 1945, the Jewish Holocaust of Nazi Germany claimed six million Jewish lives. The cost in aborted lives is now 10 times that number. The transatlantic slave trade cost about 12 million African lives between 1500 and 1866. About 1.2 to 2.4 million, we don't quite know, those are our best estimates, 1.2 to 2.4 million never survived the journey from Africa to the New World. Another 10.7 million made it to the New World where they would die as slaves. But at 12 million lives lost in the slave trade, abortion is now five times that number. Since 1973, in the passage of Roe v. Wade, there have been 15.5 million abortions of African-American babies alone. So in absolute number, the killing of 15.5 million African-American babies in the womb now surpassed the total number of lives we believe to have been lost in the transatlantic slave trade. What are we to think and to do as God's people in the face of such a staggering holocaust? 
The entire book of Proverbs, in one sense, is all about justice in our personal lives, in our relationships, and in society. The writer of Proverbs tells us that these writings were inspired in chapter 1, verse 3, in part so that we would have instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. The fear of the Lord produces wisdom, and wisdom produces justice. Now, if the entire book about Proverbs is about learning to do justice in part, then we should not be surprised to see that in the very last chapter, the the Proverbs return to this theme. And that's where we find the answer to the question, what should God's people do? In short, God requires his people to speak up and to speak out. To advocate, just as we were hearing a moment ago from uh, Gateway. Every just Christian is an advocate for the vulnerable, for the oppressed, for the afflicted. If you're taking notes this morning, I want to hang our thoughts on, on four observations. We want to see, number one, the creation of advocates, verses 1 to 7. We wish to see, number two, the command to advocate, verses 8 and 9. Number three, we want to see the clients of our advocacy. And number four, the cause of our advocacy, the creation, the command, the clients, and the cause of our advocacy. Look with me in Proverbs 31, verses 1 to 9. The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth. Judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. First thing we want to see from this text is the creation of advocates. Where do good advocates come from? Well, they come from two places. Number one, good mamas raise good advocates. You see that there in verse 1? It's telling us that these sayings were taught to King Lemuel by his mother. Uh, Former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt was a champion of human rights. She chaired the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. She was asked by a reporter this question, where, after all, do, do universal rights begin? And this is what she said. In small places, close to home, so close and so small that they cannot be seen on any maps of the world. Such are the places where every man, woman, and child seeks equal justice, equal opportunity, equal dignity without discrimination. Unless these rights or biblical justice have meaning there, they have little meaning anywhere. You see what Eleanor Roosevelt was saying. If the dignity, beauty, value, and tenderness of life isn't taught at home, then it won't have any meaning anywhere. Teaching kids to do justice ought to be an active and explicit part of parenting. 
Women and mothers are critical in forming just societies. The, the hand that rocks the cradle really does rule the nation. Part of our vision for parenting and part of our vision for advocacy isn't about partisan politics, though that's, that's a part of it. it. It is about right at home, in the nursery, the dinner table, transferring a set of values and perspectives that become an inoculation against the kind of thinking that makes abortion even possible. If we want to make abortion unthinkable in our generation, we've got to mold the minds of our children. I'm a big fan of the movie Black Panther. I'm still Wakanda forever. <laughs> if you've seen the movie, you know they have two male sort of characters starring the protagonist and the antagonist, T'Challa and Killmonger, vying to be the, the king of Wakanda. And, and T'Challa is supposed to represent everything traditional and good and right. And Killmonger is this sort of wild, reckless uh, um, disrespecter of life. And, and you know what the big difference is between T'Challa and Killmonger? It's not their father's that T'Challa had a mother and Killmonger didn't. It was his mother who molded him. And it is still today the case that mothers mold the minds of our children and therefore, by extension, our country. She's instructing her son in how to be a king. What are you doing? Don't give away your strength to women. Don't give away your strength to wine. She's wanting him to stay away from things that, that sap his integrity and, and warp his character. How many know that's good parenting and that a lot of little boys aren't getting it? And a lot of those little boys grow up to be our lawmakers and elected officials and movie producers and entertainers. But notice the reason she gives for avoiding that. Verse 5. They may cause him to forget what has been decreed, that is God's word, God's law, and pervert the rights of the afflicted. Any leader who's influenced by the lifestyle that she's warning against here will soon take advantage of the weak, will soon pervert the rights of the afflicted. A couple of drinks with the good old boys in a smoke-filled country club will, will lead to robbing people of their pensions on Wall Street. A few more parties and, and late nights will lead to New York State Assembly celebrating the, the further extension and destruction of life as if that were a good thing. But good advocates come from good mamas who teach right and wrong and pass along compassion for the hurting. There's a second place that good advocates come from. They come from our good God. That's where they come from ultimately. Daniel 2, 21 says it's God who establishes kings and, and God who brings down kings. Romans 13 says every government is ordained by God. So in so far as a, a king or ruler is meant to be an advocate for people according to the sort of ideal of the scriptures, then that good advocate comes ultimately from our good God. As king, Lemuel represents all of government, law, and society. The, the king was the symbol and the embodiment of justice. He was to administer the affairs of the people according to God's word. And as we think about this instruction to King Lemuel, we, we learn a couple things about the role of government according to the Bible, don't we? 
First, government should protect the rights of the people, especially the vulnerable and the poor. The highest leaders are meant by God to protect the lowest citizens. Powerful kings should advocate for weak people. Notice, not pervert the rights of the afflicted. Secondly, we should look for leaders then with the character that suggests that they would indeed protect the vulnerable in society. I mean, that's the explicit reason that Lemuel's mother cautions him against an immoral lifestyle. His character affects his rule. Righteousness exalts a nation, the Bible says. And when there's righteousness in the highest office, then there will be peace and blessing in the humblest homes. During the last election, a lot of leaders said, we're not looking for a pastor-in-chief, but a commander-in-chief. That's cute. They were saying the president didn't need to have the character of a pastor in order to be able to lead the entire country. In 2011, only 30% of evangelicals said that an elected official could be both immoral personally and ethical in public office. In other words, 70% didn't believe that was a possibility. Same survey, 2016, the numbers were reversed. A a staggering 72% of professing evangelicals said, yeah, it's possible to be an immoral person personally and lead the country ethically. Beloved, that's a troubling and unbiblical way of thinking. If we are interested in God's best design for government, and if we are interested in the protection of the vulnerable. In God's eyes, in the language of the Old Testament, kings and governors and officials are shepherds. They are to care for the people. They are to bind up the hurting. They are to bonk on the head the wolves. Now, in a democratic society like our own, we may not have great choices. See the 2016 election. (laughs) But whatever the choices, we have to make the best possible decision with texts like Proverbs 31, 1 to 9 in mind. These texts teach us that character does matter for leadership. Advocates at the government level come from good mamas and from our good God. We ought to want that. Indeed, some of you ought to want to be that. The way you may be called of God to speak up in defense of life is by running for office, by carrying the mind of Christ into the halls of power. For Romans 13 tells us that that too is a vocation from God, that such persons are ministers of God. Consider it if you have it. It's the second thing, our second point. We want to see here the call to advocacy. We see it in verses 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth. Judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. In Hebrew poetry, if you wish to emphasize something, you repeat it. The repetition of open your mouth, open your mouth, is meant to stress the importance of speaking up. We cannot be the people of justice God calls us to be if we do not speak up in the face of injustice. Of the way Paul Tripp puts this in War of Words, he says, our words are the principal tools God uses in the work he does through us. I would say speaking is perhaps the most unique God-like thing human beings do. 
Only God and humans speak. The call to speak up as advocates is a call to image forth God, to show forth his likeness. It is a call to speak as God would speak in a situation of injustice. This text, verses 8 and 9, doesn't allow us to be bystanders, does it? It's a command. Say something when you see wrong being done. Say something in the cause of the unborn for the injustice they suffer in the womb. Injustice should be important enough to us that we would make the moral risk of speaking. We must see speaking out as an indication of moral vitality or death. Dr. King put it this way, our lives begin to end Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. If we are silent when God says, speak, beloved, I think we're in sin. God requires us to have faith and courage enough to open our mouths. If we we won't even open our mouths, we dare not think we'd lay down our lives. We plan it so safe we won't speak. We're not likely to take bigger risks in defense of the weak. Now, this is not an encouragement to be loud mouths or blue hearts. This is not saying we should always be running our mouth and bumping our gums about stuff we don't know anything about. Again, to quote Paul Tripp from War of Words, he says this, the problem with my words is that they are idle words, I-D-O-L words. Word problems reveal heart problems. Whatever controls our hearts will control our words. Proverbs 10, 19 says, when words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. So there's still reason to remember James' admonition to to be slow to speak, especially if we need to grow in understanding of an issue. But the burden of Proverbs 31 is not be slow to speak, but be sure to speak. We must speak up, but we must not waste words. I'm trying to learn this myself personally. In wasting my words, I I waste opportunities to show the image and likeness of God in the world. In in wasting my words, I I fail to listen to others for teachable moments. I, I miss opportunities that should be seized, or I injure people I really want to help and to motivate, or or I risk the the, the so I take the risk of, of wanting to appear righteous rather than get the result that's needed for the vulnerable. I'm trying to remember and practice Proverbs 25, 21. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. See, that's wisdom's call to speak with well-timed, well-chosen, well-placed words by God's grace. How are you doing at that? Are you speaking up for the unborn, Are you opening your mouths and letting with grace and truth a a vision unfurl for others that affirms life? Do you need courage to speak or restraint 
in your speech? Or do you need God's forgiveness for things you've said or not said? Remember what the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36 and 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. It's a terrifying statement. God is so holy and so righteous that in his justice he will, he will judge us for every careless word. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, did you realize that? Did you realize that the angry word, the careless word, the unnecessarily sharp word, the false word, the mean word, the partially true word, every word will be reviewed at the day of judgment when your life is judged. If that day were today, and just one simple word is enough to make you guilty before a holy God, where would you spend eternity? Would it be heaven or hell? And that's not a hypothetical question, beloved. That's literally what Jesus says in Matthew 12. Our words will either condemn us or justify us. But what are the words that justify us, that make us righteous with God? Well, it's the word of the gospel. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He, he never said a sinful word himself. He was perfect in righteousness. That righteousness was offered to God on our behalf. Then he died in our place on the cross to suffer the punishment that we deserve for every careless word and even bigger sins. Christ atoned for us. He died for us. He took the punishment for us. He was buried, and three days later, he was raised from the grave for us, sinners though we are that we might have forgiveness with God, be declared righteous by God, be reconciled to God, and be renewed in the image of God in true holiness and righteousness and knowledge, and have the promise, the guarantee of eternal life in the presence of God where there is pleasure and joy forevermore and where there is no more death or disease or unrighteousness. The words that justify us might be something like this. You're saying this morning, if you're not yet a Christian, I confess I am a sinner. I repent of my sin. I turn away from it. I believe Jesus is God's son. I believe Jesus died for me personally, for my sins. I, I believe Jesus was raised from the grave on the, on the third day. And I believe Jesus is my righteousness through faith. My life belongs to him and I will follow him as my Lord and my God. Those are the righteous words that bring justification with God. A person with that kind of faith has been born again and is right with God. Is that you this morning? Why not make it you today if it's not yet? Which brings us to our third observation, the clients of advocacy. See what the writer says there. He says to open your mouth for the mute, for all those who are destitute, for the poor and needy. Three words and phrases defining each other in these two verses. These words and phrases also tell us who our clients are in our advocacy. First, we are told to speak up for the mute, a person who has no ability to speak. 
The, the word there could refer to people literally unable to, to speak, but probably includes figuratively those who are disenfranchised and have no access to power, have no leverage of change. Is there a group of people more aptly described by the word mute than the unborn who cannot speak for themselves? Though we know from the science, they feel pain and react to it. We see the nonverbals there. That's a kind of speaking. But, but in our discussions at our dining tables, in our discussions in our boardrooms, they're not there to speak for themselves. But mute applies to a larger category as well. We know that because the parallel phrase to mute is that next phrase, all those who are destitute. So King Lemuel's mother wants him to look out for everyone and every category of people who are destitute. The Hebrew there is literally sons of passing away or sons of destruction. These are folks folks who are desperate in near-death situations. And now notice destitute gets amplified further in that last phrase in verse 9, the poor and needy. A a destitute person is someone who, because of abject poverty, cannot meet their basic needs. So domestically, we might think of someone who is homeless, those with mental illness, the widow and the orphan. Internationally, we might call to mind refugees and immigrants, religiously persecuted groups, and so on. Now, can I point out something from this text? It seems to me that when God thinks about being pro-life, he has in view life from the womb to the tomb. God is not just pro-birth. He is that. He is pro-birth. He is the giver of life. He's the author of life. But God is also pro-justice, and he expects the lives of those outside the womb to be righteously treated and guarded as well. God is pro-life from womb to tomb. This is why the text says here, see it in the text now, speak up for all those who are destitute, the poor, and the needy. In the Hebrew, all means something like all. God is not a single-issue voter. His ethics are not single-issue ethics. And if we are speaking forth in a way that models God's heart and what God is like, our ethics should not be single-issue ethics either. It's staggeringly clear that the largest-scale injustice, the most morally outrageous thing happening in our society today is the killing of children in the womb. In terms of absolute numbers, it's it's not even close. So it is right. We we must advance a vision for life, and we must advocate for those who are in the womb. But God spare us from having our hearts constricted and shrunken to that one issue. When we're called here to advocate for all who are destitute. It's only when we do that, when we advocate for all who are destitute, when our pro-life vision is wound to tomb, that we really do join God in what he's doing in the world. Why do I say that? Because of Psalm 103, verse 6. There the psalmist celebrates as he writes, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. 
That's what God is up to. That's what his people should be up to, working righteousness and justice from, for the unborn and those who are living outside the womb, uh, who are oppressed and poor and needy. This text, this text makes it clear that that's what God expects of us as leaders and his people. And to know this biblical responsibility and refuse to do it is a betrayal of God and neighbor. To quote Dr. King again, there comes a time when silence is betrayal. In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. We should not feel good about ourselves if God has called us to advocate for the helpless, but we have remained silent. It's not that every person must be involved in every way on every issue. We must find our lanes and and in ways that are consistent with providence and and our personal giftings and resources. We should do what we can in the lanes that we provide. And speaking out can mean a million things, but let it be more than hashtag activism. Let it be volunteering at Gateway, at a pregnancy center speaking with fathers who are the most decisive factor in whether or not a woman decides to keep the child. Let it be speaking to the woman who's facing the prospect of raising a baby without the support of of the man who impregnated her, the father, and is no doubt facing all kinds of fear and insecurity. Let it be the voice of hope. Let it be the voice of assurance. Let it be the voice of compassion and support. Let it be the voice of a Christian church member who says, our church will stand with you to help you get the resources you need to see this life flourishing. Let us speak to our congressmen. Let us speak to our legislators, writing letters, making phone calls. Let our voices be heard, not just in support, of electing pro-life officials, but also in accountability to those officials who are elected, that they might act in ways that are consistent with life. Let us preach, let us speak, let us do all we can to, to advocate for those who are not yet born, who are alive every bit as much as us, who are human every bit as much as us, and who are meant to bear God's image and likeness for his glory in the world. The question is, do we have hearts that embrace an expansive pro-life vision from wound to tomb that speaks up for all who are destitute, the poor and the needy? Are hearts small or are they large? There's another reason why that's an important question. Because if our hearts are small and focused on any single issue, whatever the issue is, Soon, the smallness of our heart and the narrowness of our vision will begin to undermine the legitimacy of our claim on that single issue, too. Make that plain. If you and I show up in conversations to to take our single issue, when people are talking about other issues of injustice, and in the manner that this is the only thing that anybody care about or talk about, we will prove ourselves to be fairly uncaring people, and that will call into question even the thing we say we care about most. It's the expansive heart that gives legitimacy even to the issues that we think are the most important issues compared to all others. Which brings us to our final point, the cause of advocacy. You see there where the text says, judge rightly 
defend the rights of the poor and needy. We don't want to be rebels without a cause. That may have been cool for James Dean in the 60s, but it's not for God's people. God has very kindly defined for us our cause as advocates. Our cause is to open our mouths to judge rightly and to defend rights. Judge rightly and to defend rights. And those things go together like like ham and eggs. This may be too obvious to say, so please forgive me, but but these two verses, 8 and 9, make it plain that Christian advocacy is not about the Christian and what the Christian wants, but about the destitute and what they need. The poor and needy need representation and protection. When we speak up, it ought to be about those two things with words and messages likely to be successful and not about our own image and reputation. I used to work with a small nonprofit organization that advocated for people with disabilities to work in integrated employment settings. And we would often have to uh, sort of inform employers of the ADA and other appropriate laws and policies which were meant to protect the rights of people with disabilities. And it was a little season where I think my, my team grew in a lot. We just grew in self-righteousness. We were always kind of uh, upset with the employers who didn't get it the way we got it. And we'd have our little staff meetings and we'd be commiserating together about how bad this one was or that one was. I worked for a wonderful woman named Kay Holgis and she decided to have a team building retreat and she invited this facilitator in and, and he asked us about our work and we were going on about, you know, just how righteous we are and how not understanding the world is and, and he listened to that for a good long while and then he just sort of, after a long pregnant pause, he asked this question that's lived with me for over 20 years. He said, so, is it more important for you to be right or to get the results that your clients need? Is it more important for you to be seen as right or to get the results that the vulnerable need? And that question's been checking my spirit for over two decades. And so when we come to sort of think about the cause of our advocacy, Christians, let us be careful that we're not loud and angry and sometimes counterproductive because we feel self-righteous. And we're taking a sort of advocacy stance that's lost sight of the actual people and their need. And when I ask you this question, I'm not asking you to sacrifice truth. I'm not asking you to sacrifice actually being right. I'm asking you to put to death, and for me to put to death, the appearance of righteousness, a a, a fabrication of righteousness that isn't really a reflection of, of, of what we're called to do, but to actually be about genuine advocacy and the protection of life and considering the needs of the other way more than we consider our reputations to lay it down so others might be able to live. Notice here we are fighting for rights. The word rights here is used about 11 times in the Bible. A couple times the Bible talks about the rights of husbands and wives to each other, Once it mentions the rights of kings, twice Paul mentions his right to, Paul mentions his right as an apostle to to pay. Jeremiah 5.28 mentions the rights of the poor, but three of the references are right here in Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Bible doesn't give us an exhaustive list of, of rights to be defended. Instead, the Bible treats the understanding of rights 
as a matter of righteousness. Proverbs 29, 7 says, a righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. I take that to mean that God's people should not be generally confused about what's right and wrong, what rights are due to others. And even if the world is confused about that and full of debate about it, those who know Christ and have the mind of Christ should not. Abortion is wrong. Every person given life by God has a right to actually live. We ought to be those people who make that case as eloquently as we can, as persuasively and humble and lovingly as we can, so that we might effectively achieve the outcomes we desire for those who've been killed by the millions every year. May the Lord have mercy on the country and give grace to the church. And may he give us grace and boldness to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. Let's pray together. (coughs) Father, we pray that you would help us. Help us to bear witness and to bring light into kitchen table conversations and public policy debates and everything in between, that your grace and truth and love and the knowledge of Christ might be known to all. You are the best defender of the poor and needy, the destitute, the mute. Do what we often feel we are unable to do, Lord. Save lives from the womb to the tomb. Cause your justice to shine and your righteousness to shine like the noonday sun. And grant grace, O Lord, to to all of us to play our part, to speak up and to speak out. Again, that lives might be saved and justice might in some degree be advanced until you come. We pray this, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.